Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest in this episode is Luis Reyes, managing partner at Iberian Ventures in Spain. Luis worked in strategy consulting before acquiring small companies in Spain in a similar vein as the search fund model through Iberian. We kick off by talking about the buyout market in Spain and what makes it particularly attractive. For example, all private companies in Spain have to file their financials with the government. As a result, the full financial picture of any company in Spain can be found and sorted online. We also spend a great deal of time talking about one of their core investment theses, the fire protection market, and why it's an ideal market for consolidation. Today's sponsor Q&A is with Oakbourne Advisors, an independent retirement plan consulting firm that helps small companies design and implement great retirement plans for their teams. We're joined by Matt Reba to talk about the most common issues CEOs run into with retirement plans. What's the process look like for a business to uncover the fees and features of their retirement plan compared to having a retirement plan consultant do it for them? If you want to go through the process yourself, you'll need to dig up a handful of documents associated with your plan. These include, but are not limited to, the 404A, the 408B2, employee census, and summary plan description. It really depends on what providers you're using to get the right information, and this process can be tedious if you're unfamiliar with what to look for. These documents will give you most of what you'll need to start understanding what fees you and your staff are paying. The summary plan description lays out the features that are offered by the plan, features like auto enrollment, auto escalation, loans, employer matches, and so on. Aside from the time that it takes to gather, interpret, and analyze all this information, the trouble any business will face when trying to do this on their own is that they're looking at all of this in a vacuum. Pricing and features need to be evaluated on a relative basis. And what that means is an HVAC company with 40 employees and say 4 million in payroll, they're going to have a very different plan compared to a professional services company that has a headcount of 20 who rely on two to three highly compensated employees. When you engage us as a consultant, we'll utilize industry-specific tech solutions that allow us to deliver in detail all the costs and features within a 30-minute phone call compared to the hours it would take you to try to do it on your own. It's not just a time savings benefit either. As consultants, we help businesses understand the relative costs and features of their plan compared to like-sized companies and offer advice to enhance this benefit when suitable. That way, you'll know you're in a position to save money or take advantage of your plan in ways you didn't previously know. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Oakborn Advisors is a registered investment advisor. Registration is not an endorsement by securities regulators and does not imply that Oakborn Advisors has attained a certain level of skill, training, or ability. This does not constitute personalized advice or solicitation to execute specific securities transactions. The potential benefit of Oakborn Advisors services will vary based upon the client's individual circumstances. To understand your company retirement plan's potential and features and cost, and to see where it stands today against industry benchmarks, reach out to the Oakborn team by heading to oakborn.com think. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Liveoak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I think an interesting place to start would actually be talking about Spain as a, as a buyout market. There's obviously, a, there seems to be a nice concentration of searchers in Spain and of the you know, 
outside, you know, on the of the non-US countries, it seems to be one of the most developed in terms of search and its understanding of search and the investor group. Kind of give us a walkthrough of Spain as a buyout market. I'd be really curious to start there. Yeah, no, definitely. So I think Spain, it's in general, right, as all Europe, it's having a set of factors that make it a, a market ripe for entrepreneurship to acquisition, right? Like it's it, the country is getting all really fast. So you have a large population of 65 plus people that founded the businesses that actually took Spain from a developing country, I would say before the seventies in the transition to democracy to where it is right now, right? Like, which is a high income country and all of those businesses, which are like from medium to high value added are like led still by 70, 65, 80 year old folks. The kids of these people live through a phase of a lot of work to create these businesses. And what we're finding is that most of them do not want to operate these businesses, right? They want to work consulting and in tech. They don't want to live also in the small towns. Spain has also like in hyperdrive trend that it's going on in other countries, which is like moving to the cities, right? Spain has four or five large cities compared with other countries in, in, in Europe, which typically is one city, right? Like UK, you have London and, and, and as a big city, right? And pretty much, pretty much. And here we have like four or five big cities. So the kind of, let's say the, the moment in which the society is right now makes it a, like a great market to acquire uh, great businesses, right? And in terms of the numbers, Spain is a country mostly based on SMEs, right? So you have around kind of 2000 companies of more than 10 million EBITDA. Then you have like the, what we, what we could consider the core middle market of kind of 2000 in five to 10 million in EBITDA. Then you have 14,000 companies with one to five million in EBITDA. And you have like below that, you have like almost a million companies with less than 1 million EBITDA. If you clean all the, you know, single folks having their own kind of job as a business and very, very small concern, you have kind of a hundred to 200,000 companies with, with between 500 K and 1 million euros in EBTA. And again, a lot of these companies are led by this 65 year old cohort, right? So when you see the sheer numbers of companies below 10 million, it's, it's an amazing place to fish, right? In a sense, like there's a lot of opportunities. Now, in terms of the, let's say how easy it is to acquire companies, the laws are a little bit harder than in other countries in Europe and, and in the US. So you need to set up a somehow complex structure of SPVs or special purpose vehicles. You cannot kind of raise debt in the target to acquire the company. So it, it is complex, but there is a lot of a, a full ecosystem of lawyers and fiscal and regulatory kind of advisors that already have this figured out. So you, you can just fit very nicely into an existing ecosystem of advisors to figure that complexity out. And in terms of the society, I would say, and this is more debatable, and this is just a theory of what we see, right? And what investors tell us is that the Spanish uh, entrepreneurs are way more open about selling to 
people outside of the region or outside of even the country, right? I'm American, Mexican, I'm buying companies in the countryside of Catalonia, and I never face any kind of cultural resistance on the opposite, right? Like folks are very excited to see people from outside coming and buying companies. And, and in that kind of sociological aspect of it, Spain is a great country to live, right? So you have a lot of folks that come after studying for their MBAs in, in Europe, in the rest of Europe, in the US, like being very glad to come and go to live in a country of, you know, in, in a town of 80,000, 100,000 inhabitants. So you have a lot. So just to summarize, right, a large pool of companies of high quality being led by people without a succession, right? Second, a very open society to enter to acquisitions from people outside of their areas. Third, a large number of highly educated professionals that are interested in the opportunity. And then a regulatory and financial services industry that already has a lot of professionals with, the, let's say, the, the structures for acquisitions really, really nailed down. And one thing that you mentioned that blew my mind is that Spain private companies have public financials. You can go and and search through, is it for a certain threshold or like, like above a certain income level or revenue level, like your financials have to be public? Like where does that fall? Yeah, so so now that's 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 a very helpful aspect for us. Basically, all companies are required to publish their financials on a public register, right? And this is private companies. So you need to publish all details of your PL and your balance sheet. Now, there is there are some companies that decide not to do it, especially in really like secretive sectors with bad economics. So for example, if you look at the food delivery companies, they do not publish them. And what they do is you face a fine, right? And it's a small fine, like a few thousand euros from the regulator. But at some point you do need to release them. So but what they're doing in, in like these companies in hyper growth phase, they prefer to delay it until at some point they're going to be forced to do it. But, but no, it's every company. So it's curious that, for example, the financials of McKinsey or Bain, I was working in that segment before, right? In the US, like there's a lot of competitive research that the companies do to kind of figure out how much the other, the, the, the revenues of the others. And here you just go into the registry and you put like McKinsey, LCC, let's say, and then you see all the financials, the employees and uh, EBTA. So it's amazing. You have all the information available. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. I can imagine the, the private company Bloomberg terminal for that would be amazing if that, if that worked in the U S I imagine that makes searching and looking at different companies and industries pretty, pretty straightforward then in terms from a financial and business model perspective. No, that, that is correct. So we, we do have, uh, we create and write our, our own software precisely because of the abundance of information. We just create a software in which we input like all the companies in our target industries and in our range of EBTA. We just have them all, right? We have like 10, 15,000 companies in our database and we do all sorts of analysis on the industry. We identify the companies with the most attractive economics. So it's, it's very easy to do this sort of analysis. And an interesting thing is that this does not represent a competitive advantage, obviously, with, with other searches. And, and, and we see that's what we see in Spain, like also a lot of competition for kind of the same targets, because it's very easy to put all that information into a database. 
I'm going to look for the companies with like the 40% EBDA and most, uh, I can guarantee you that the companies between 3 million or above in EBDA, all of them will have received at some point letter uh, from somebody wanting to acquire it. That's kind of also what pushes, pushed us to a segment of companies with EBDA below 1 million. Here we find that none of these companies almost, right? Like I would say like 99% of the companies we reach out to have ever been approached by anybody on uh, proposing an acquisition. And so you said you were from, from Mexico originally and worked in Chicago in consulting. Did you have any previous ties to Spain? No, that's actually pretty funny, right? So I was, I worked for McKinsey in Brazil, then in the US. I kind of took advantage of the mobility that consulting gives you. And I moved with my wife and my kids throughout the US. We live in Houston, in San Francisco, in Chicago, in Boston. And the US is such a large market that most of us, unless you want to, I mean, you don't work for in projects outside of the US, right? So I honestly had been in, in Spain, you know, in, in uh, holidays and kind of the odd one week for a particular project. But I had zero contact with with Spain, and then one day I had Hunter call me from Bain, which is competitor right of McKinsey, and they said, you know, we're building our team and we're looking for somebody that has this and that experience and that speaks Spanish, and then they proposed to us to move. By that by that time, I already had two daughters, and when I saw the difference in salary, it's like it's one third of the salary total comp, right? Like Spain compared to to the U.S., but you know. I can always go back and say like the experience of being here is, and we, we came just like pure adventure. Let's say, let's go and let's live a little bit in Europe. And, and that was it. No, no, no previous ties. I didn't need, I didn't know anybody in the country basically. Yeah. And did you find that the consulting work and that experience and that job title, was it helpful in, in, in any way in talking to, to business owners at all? I, I, I feel not in my, in the, in the targets that we, that we have right now, right? Most of the folks that, that are leading the businesses that we acquire are the founders, right? They're, they come from a, uh, let's say less educated background. Uh, they're obviously great at what they do, but most of them do not have formal education. And all of these consulting finance kind of roles for them is not a is not a, a plus, right? Sometimes it is a minus. I think what does help is that in consulting in professional services, you get exposed to a pretty wide range of personalities and it gets easier, obviously, to in general interact with folks. But but none of the, let's say, presentation skills that you have coming out of consulting are helpful in here, right? Like if you start speaking about EBTAs multiples when you approach in general right this type of founders it's not it doesn't help the conversation right so so it helps us with the investors but not uh necessarily talking to the company owners you know <laughs> gotcha yeah that makes sense Can you give us a walkthrough of the companies that you've purchased so far business models you know rough customer base and then kind of the way you've structured those acquisitions to date so far for sure for sure so we started, you know, given the richness of, of data that we had out there, we just hired a team of analysts and we started by just sorting all the, just looking for attractive companies, right? It doesn't matter which industry. 
Uh, we said, let's buy. We started with a holding idea. We're going to buy like 15, 20 great businesses with EBDA above 25 to 40%, just great businesses that have some sort of structure around. And the first company that we found that met the criteria was a company selling equipment for poultry farms, right? So you have ventilators and sensors, computers. It's, it's fairly modern, like the poultry farms nowadays. And so there's a lot of technology there. We found a, a distributor of this equipment with number one distribution position in Catalonia for one particular segment of the market. They sell around 4 million a year, 4 million euros with EBDA of 0.6, Most of it converted to cash. I mean, it's except taxes, the companies like services or so no capex required, no other investments really. So except taxes, mostly, mostly cash flow. That company we acquired it for the, the standard here is four to five times CBDA. And again, structure is 50% equity, 50% debt. We did use also like vendor loans and earnouts and all that sort of stuff. So the initial payment was fairly acceptable and low when you compare with bigger acquisitions. And the second, which is in the fire protection industry, kind of much smaller, right? 1.5 million in revenue, very, very recurrent revenue. We say like 90% of it is maintenance with the same customers year on year. So the type of customers is a very fragmented base of retail customers that buy services for and maintenance for their you know, fire extinguisher, their signals in case of a fire, they have all the right signals, their sprinklers, and all this sort of very simple equipment. By law, you have to maintain it every year. So there's a large base of retail customers and also very large like hospitals, schools, those are a little bit more competitive, right? But every year you gain some, you lose some. Fairly stable, 1.5 million for the last 10 years with 40, 45% EBDA. Again, most of it converted to cash and a structure with very, I want to say professional, but a, a very solid structure, except the founder, right? Which is kind of hands-on on everything, but for all the roles, sales, procurement, operations, there's, there's people on it. And the structure was fairly similar around 5x EBTA, 50% equity, 50% debt, vendor loan, earn out and all this sort of stuff. So that's kind of the structure. I would love to dive into fire protection as an industry and market for consolidation and your broad thesis there. I think a good start would be kind of looking through the business you have, the business model that it is at 1.5. And then how does that compare to the industry broadly or those, since you have all that public financial information, like does that, does that type of model carry over to the rest of the industry? And what does, what does the business model countrywide look like and how, how does it fit with a consolidation thesis? Yeah, for sure. So I would say that again, like we fail on this industry by by chance right because we were looking for attractive target this company was really attractive in its financials but once we started giving a second look and we just look at all the companies in the sector we realized right like the opportunity the opportunity is basically this right like the the fire protection industry it's inside or a subsector of the wider security industry right and you have 
actual security where you know security guards, cameras, you have fire protection, and you have a different sort of protection. So the large players in the market, like 50, 100 million euros in revenues, focus on the whole spectrum of security for large companies, right? So let's say I have a hospital, right? I need security cameras, I need guards, I need fire protection, I need protection, even cyber protection. So I go to one of these large players and I want to be dealing with, you know, 10, 20 contractors. So I just go with one of the large players and I just get all my security sorted. So that market is humongous, right? You can imagine, right? It's like five, seven Bs. And inside that market, the fire protection in market is divided in active, which is all the extinguishers and whatnot. And then you have passive, which is all the like doors, materials to protect the buildings. In that market, the active fire protection is the most interesting in terms of consolidation, right? Why? The business, like the op- like the operations of the of the business, require that you have a large footprint of people right in close to the to the customer because what you do basically is like you visit the building you do an inspection you find like you do you see like the uh, hoses sprinklers the fire extinguisher needs any maintenance and you fix like small problems right like you need a hose that needs a little bit tightening the extinguisher is in the in the wrong place so you fix so you mean it means that you need to be very close to your to your customer footprint. So when you look at the country, you have hundreds and hundreds, literally, of companies in every city, right? Because, for example, we serve the southern part of Barcelona, right? And even if we want to expand, expanding means even in Barcelona, if we sell in the north, probably we just need to open a different office and hire people that live nearby, right? So you need to be visiting a lot of, of, of customers every day. So that not like the, the nature of the operations drive a lot of the, uh, 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 the structure of the market with a lot of companies. So the big players, what they do is either they go to like only the bigger cities and they establish their own footprint but mostly they subcontract, right? The services to some of the smaller, like in our case, right? Our company. Now you could live pretty well by serving the large players in your area, but that's like the large players obviously want some of that margin. So the, the margins that we have, it's because we don't depend on serving only the large customers. We have a large retail customer base. Now, in terms of, acquisition, let's say serial acquisition, it is, as you can see, a right market because there's a lot of fragmentation, but also there are not super obvious opportunities to streamline operations, right? Yes, you do the typical shared services center, you have, you can also have procurement, HR, et cetera, et cetera, but the core of the operations, what drives 90% of the cost, which is people doing work at the customer side, you cannot optimize that, right? So it's, it is very attractive. And for, for a player like us that we want to build a 50, 20 million player over the next two or three years, only here in Catalonia, it's very achievable, but we feel very open and, and, and very comfortable 
talking openly about it because it is not a marketing, which you can say, you know, with a large amount of capital, you can just go and start consolidating at, at a national level. Because again, like the economies of scale are not such that you can start buying uh, unprofitable players and get them to 40% EBITDA. So you have to focus on profitable companies first before getting the expertise to turn around less profitable ones? Exactly right. So that's that's what we're doing, right? Like we're finding, like here in Catalonia, again, there's like 200, 250 companies. So we're doing, we're, we're focusing on the two or three that have similar economics to the company that we have. So we can continue operating with kind of that leverage of cash flow generation before going and venturing in companies that are unprofitable. And, and you can say, right, like the typical leverage, okay, we buy an unprofitable company and we raise prices, but that's not the, the way it works, right? This market is very sensitive, as you can imagine, given the nature of the services and the competitive dynamics. If you're unprofitable, yes, you can get out of that, but it's not like you can call the customers and say, you know, your next review is going to be like 30, 40% more expensive because in that moment, they just go into Google or open, you know, like their yellow pages and they want to have like 30 other companies around that are going to be very happy to keep maintaining the same margins that they had before. So, so it's, it, it, it is a little bit complicated to get out of an unprofitable situation in, in, the, in this industry. Yeah. What are financing options for acquisitions like this? If you can find you know, enough companies with, this, with similar economics that you feel like you can deploy a good amount of capital to, what are, what are your debt options for, for part of this strategy? Yeah, that's another reason why, now that you mentioned financing, why we started with very profitable companies, right? Because raising debt for this acquisition was like fairly easy. So we went to the largest bank in, in Spain and we managed to get a typical traditional LBO debt, you know, you, with the corporate guarantee, like kind of the, the equity of the company as a guarantee of the acquisition, obviously with 2% plus Euribor interest. Now that was before we had like the Euribor, it was at that time Euribor was minus 0.6%. So in fact, we were paying 1.5% annual interest rate for these kind of acquisitions. Now we got lucky, right? Like we were the first, the bank told us we were the first acquisition of that size ever financed. The other alternative are direct lenders, right? Direct lenders, they're way more in the country. They have a little bit more lax credit rating standards, but the interest rate at that time, it was like 6% for this same acquisition. So now that the interest rates have been up, I think you can go all the way 8% to 10%. There are a lot of players in the direct lending market enough for I think people still to be able to get financing for the next year or two probably. So if you're going to buy a company, you walk. I'd like to walk through like a transaction example in terms of how you would structure something like this and then what's the what if any are some of these integration plans you mentioned a few services that could be centralized but i'd be curious for structure and then integration afterwards what would that look like yeah so yeah in spain and in some other countries in europe you have this interesting law in which you cannot raise debt in the target for an acquisition right that's considered it's it's, it's not legal basically so what you have to do is create another company, right? Which is the SPV, where you get the, cap the investment from the equity investors, right? So we have a group of 10 equity investors. They get the money into that company and the bank also 
gets the debt into that company. The company then acquires the shares of the operating business. So in reality, the debt never reaches like the, the target company, right? So you, even after the acquisition, you have a company that is fairly clean in terms of its balance sheet. And then there is another kind of hurdle, which is to pay that debt. You need to pay dividends from the operating company to the SPB, and that is tax in Spain, right? So you pay, I believe it's 5% of 25% of the dividends. So you have another 1.25% of interest, which is in effect is interest because you, you take that money out, like rate, like put it in the SPB as a dividend, you pay 1.25% and then you're able to pay the debt there. And then the papers is very, very standard SPA. You have your, your shareholder agreement, you have your LBO contract with the bank. Everything is fairly standard, but that's kind of the particularities of the structure in Spain that you do need to have an SPB to, to do an acquisition. If it's an equity stock acquisition, right? If it's an asset, you can do kind of a more traditional structure. So right now we have not done any integration per se, right? So we, what we're doing is going to the transition phase from owner-led to a more, let's say, professionalized structure. And this is one of the main learnings that we have, right? And, and, and one of the main pains, which is obviously you kind of know that if you're going to acquire a company with 15 employees, there's not a lot of slack in that system, probably, right? But the level of, let's say, resistance and difficulty in doing changes, it's more than we face at a traditional corporate, right? We, which more people you can assume are not fully occupied the full day. So when you introduce, there's always cultural resistance, but there's more slack in the system, let's say as a whole, to take on new initiatives and do new projects here. The first thing that we do is get the finance finances in order, right? So typically these companies do not have any sort of view of their P&L, their balance sheet, other than by the end of the year. So literally like that, right? Like they have a small accountancy shop that does the taxes for them every quarter, but they do not have like a view of their PNL on a quarterly basis, right? But we cannot live like that, right? Like number one. So we install a modern ERP, cloud ERP to get the financials real time and to have visibility of the PNL and the balance sheet. And we do that in a centralized team that we have in Madrid, right? So independently of where the company is, we, we do that from a centralized location. And importantly, cash flow, right? And also these businesses, the owners treat the company as their own, basically, purse, and they have their own wealth in the company. So there's no concept of a cash flow projection or cash flow management, but we cannot operate like that, right? So we, the first month, we need to have like all the cash flow projections that and the cash needs for the whole year plan out. And if we need some line from the bank, we, we typically now prepare that before going into the company, right? So that's kind of finance is the very, very, very first thing that we do. The second is all the, let's say, HR kind of ancillary roles that people do, like sometimes even purchasing for some of the companies like the fire protection, there's not a lot of purchasing going on. So we try to get kind of this standard task that we can take, let's say standardize and take ourselves, take them out of the hands of people so they can do like their core job better, right? And third, we try to immediately start thinking of how to 
provide system support for the more like operations functions, right? Like these companies do have some source software, but it's like typically very outdated. So we try to get a, a modern ERP, a modern route management software. And this is like the, like the first 12 months. This is our priority to get kind of the operations, give them some more leverage to the, to the folks on the operations. But again, like this is kind of sounds like the playbook on paper. Now, when you talk about training folks that have been working like 30 years in one way, and when for you, the Excel that they have might seem inefficient, introducing a software, the, the technology is the least of, of, of your concerns in that situation, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely a, a big piece of, of buying any businesses, working with existing founders or, or team there. What are options for exiting? Are there, are there other larger companies that do this work that you could sell to you know, strategics or it sounds like there's a couple of private equity firms as well that could be potential outcomes as well. Do you think about that or is this more of a, do you view this more as a longer term play where exits may be much, much secondary to holding it for as long as possible? Yeah. So given that we, uh, when we started, we have this idea of kind of permanent equity structure we always thought of acquiring businesses that we would be happy to maintain, right? In one of your of the episodes of your podcast, somebody talked about how the hard work in the business, you do it during the first, let's say, three to five years. And sometimes you really don't get the rewards of that investment until, let's say, a few years have happened. So the problem with selling, obviously, is that you might put all the hard work into standardizing processes, putting like some of the growth engines and the next buyer is the one to actually capitalize on that. So for us, we want to work and, and put like the hours and the effort in businesses that we believe we would be happy to maintain long-term. And we always do things on a day by day with that in mind. Now, obviously we had investors that might decide that they actually want to get some returns out of their investment. You do the capital raise based on scenarios of selling at some point, right? So we are very mindful when we do an acquisition that there have been acquisitions in the space, right? So we always look at the industry. There have been deals in Spain in the industry, and they have been good returns for the investors in those deals. So what we want is to get the companies to a place in size and quality of their financials, but they're a target for some of the private equities shops in the country, right? And we do have the, let's say the, the baseline scenario of five to seven years to get them to that place, right? And we, we have identified the players that could buy the companies at that point, but hopefully when we're there, everybody can get behind the idea of keeping the companies for, for, for longer. Yeah, absolutely. And to this point, you've acquired companies deal by deal and, and raised to, to, uh, to a specific company at this point. What are options or paths you're thinking of in terms of something more long-term akin to a holding company, which they've become very popular for you know great reasons, but what do you view as the options that lie ahead? Yeah, we, we, you know, we, we haven't really, we have discussed internally with the team, but we, we need to at some point get these thoughts with, and, and, and you know, uh, this, uh, our investors will probably listen to this and we want to acknowledge that those conversations need to happen with the investors first, but there's like many that we have discussed, right? Like at some point, 
turning, just changing the structure in which we return money, return some of the original money to the investors. And while we have done that and give some return of at least, you know, the 8% hurdle that we had said in the beginning, although now that might not mean much with inflation, but once we have returned some money to the investors, you might have some earned the right to propose something different for a longer term. And obviously there's always the option of giving the return to the investors ourselves and just staying with the companies, operating them and continue growing the companies by doing an MBO sort of <laughs> off operation ourselves. But honestly, at this point, it's just mere speculation and anything concrete that we do need to discuss with investors at some point. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Do you see other searchers in your network in Spain thinking of, of similar thoughts? I, I'd be curious how developed the the Spain search market is for for kind of stepping outside the traditional model, what does what does that look like in, in your view? Yeah, look, I, I think that the honestly we were a little, if you want, crazy to get out of the standard search for model. Right, the search for model in Spain again is fairly developed. There's support for some pretty large acquisition. I mean, some of the folks that we know have the support of their investor to go even for a thirty million EV acquisition. Right, so when you you're starting to think of an ETA, right? And you see the option of having support to acquire a 30 million business in which you can have 30% carry or equity. So as a searcher, that model is much more attractive, to be quite honest, than what we're doing, right? Which is structuring a traditional 220 fund that is looking to buy fairly small companies and to deploy the same 30 million over a way more work, which is not only the operations, but the acquisition, we decided to do that because we believe that like, number one, there's no competition, right? Like no competition in that market. And we believe we do have passion in the space and we're betting for a second or third fund where, where, where the economics are actually there, where you can raise 100 to 100 million and do something pretty nice at a larger scale. But to be quite honest, when you think of the next five years, there's not a lot of incentives to get out of the traditional structure. And that's why most folks don't do it. And again, investors, what we have seen, right, are not super enthusiastic about alternative structures so far. Yeah. So, so far, you've mentioned the two companies that you're invested in now. I would, one, be curious what other industries you find interesting, but also... Is there some limit just in terms of like your team's capability or intellectual capability to manage you know, over you know, half a dozen or a dozen industries? I, I imagine at some point you're just, you, you can't keep your circle of competence within, you, you can't keep your work within your circle of competence. It's going to get really hard to, to manage like the dynamics of you know, a dozen or so industries. Like where do you feel like that, that line is for you and your team? Yeah, so in terms of industries and also going one of the like, the questions that you saying by email, which is what is the best business that you have ever seen, right? So my experience comes from the first five, seven years of my career was in software. I founded a startup in Mexico. We had a, a successful exit, a software traditional SaaS company. Then I went and worked at Google. So kind of the best business that I have seen, this is cliche, but it's Google, right? It has to be Google. It's a, it's a business that just prints money. So that's the best business that I have seen. And I love, I love software. I love technology. Actually, for every company that we acquire, we develop software 
for that industry. So right now we, we are uh, about to release a, the software that we created to analyze the information, but the companies in creating some statistics and finding targets. So we're about to release that software. We raised a bit of capital for that. And now we're doing a software platform for poultry companies, right? For the sales department of poultry companies. And, and we're not fans of just doing random uh, technology projects. We did do a search of all the solutions globally in the market and none of them we believe satisfy what the, what our market needs. So we're just creating a tool and doing that. So to your question, software is the best industry. And in Spain, there's a very interesting market for for software companies, also for acquisitions. The only problem is that that is very, very competitive, right? And in here in Spain, you have like obviously the traditional private equity groups, but also you have some of the Constellation softwares of the world, right? Like actually Constellation has an office here and they do fairly small acquisitions, right? Why? Because it's, it, again, like it's just too good to be true. Like the, the enterprise software companies, there have been some ridiculously high exits of pretty nice businesses. So we believe we don't have a competitive advantage, at least in access to capital or in fighting for these deals, right? So we're not going into software. But to your question, software for us will be something at some point we would love to get into, but right now it's not it's not something feasible. But the closer that it gets, to be quite honest, in terms of financials, is the good companies in the fire protection industry, right? Like there's out of those 200, obviously most of them do not have the financials of the company that we have. But when you when you find a good company there, the financials are pretty, pretty close, right? So yeah, that's in terms of the industry. And then in terms of the capacity of our team, we are three partners. We believe that one or two different industry by, by partner is at most what at this stage of our evolution, what we can handle, right? Why? Because more than the intellectual uh, capacity, as you mentioned, which is also a limit of, you know, how much information you can kind of credibly absorb and how credible can you go and talk to targets is more that we are in the weeds of the operations, right? And that is when you cannot be handling three, four, five different industries if you're actually in the operations, especially in the first acquisition and turnaround and integration. Just time is not, there's not enough hours in the day to be assembling again. It's not only working with the companies, but actually also assembling and recruiting from the, for those industries. So I believe one or two is a max that at this point we're able to, to handle each one of us. Yeah. And did you say you're raising money to develop that software to look at financials of private companies? Is that, is that what you mentioned? Yes, we, we did, we did a, a small, the story goes like this, like we developed this software just internally for our own use. And one of the, our investors saw it and said like, well, this is really interesting. I might use it for the other stuff that I'm doing. Right. And so he put us in touch with his team and they love the platform and say like, no guys, we want to kind of accelerate the development and they proposed to invest a bit, a bit of money. So we just took it out to a different company and we hire a few developers. And now we, we have developed the 2.0 version of it and are about to, to release it, put it out there in the market. Yeah. Yeah. When is it coming out? By October or, or November, we're going to have a version. If you, if you want to try it out, I can give you access. That'd be, that'd be cool to get your feedback. Yeah, absolutely. I do. That's, that sounds amazing. I love data companies. So anything to, in regards to financial data or, or you want small private company data sounds amazing. It's like the best of both worlds. 
And, you know, going, going here on, on, a, a, bit on, a, on a tangent, I feel that the U.S. is very developed in terms of marketplaces for acquisitions, right? Like that's something that you like this by sale, like part flippers, all that sort of stuff that I don't think it's kind of where folks like us fish, but it's, it's very developed, right? Here in Spain, you don't have that sort of development. But one thing that all these companies lack, it's the quality of the data, right? Like when you go there, it's very deficient. It's obviously because the targets do not publish most, most of their finances. But I feel that in countries such as Spain, that we're very fortunate of having kind of all this uh, trove of open data. When you go into a marketplace, you should be able to have, let's say we have our own algorithm, right? With 40, 50 different kind of, we look at the typical metrics and then we do some correlations and say, we're looking for a company with this asset intensity and this kind of financials. And then we do a scoring, right? And that's pretty, I think pretty much what everybody does when, when they look at targets, but we apply that formula to all the companies that we see, and then we rank them, and then we just have the analysts going through that. And that's pretty effective to kind of optimize the way that you look at things. And it would be pretty cool to go to an Empire Flipper and just use your own algorithm, right? Let's say this is my, like, kind of my scoring, and let me go through your list according to my criteria. So that's, that's kind of what we're trying to recreate here. And, you know, we, some of our investors say, like, that's kind of your secret sauce. And we believe that it's really not, right? Like we just have our own criteria, but putting that software in the hands of all kind of search funders and even private equity funds would be pretty cool for them to use the same information, but with their own criteria. And we're going to be looking at the same companies, but in a different way. And that's pretty much like way more useful than in the traditional marketplace which, you know, just a random sampling of list of companies. That's kind of where we just started to think about how, where do we take that, that business? Yeah, that's pretty amazing. You already mentioned one of the closing questions, the best business with your answer being Google. So I'll go with the other one. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? Yeah, I feel like if, if I can cheat a bit here and, and use, use to, so the first is that quote, like very famous from Warren Buffett, right? Like when a management with a reputation for brilliant tackles, a business with a reputation for econ bad, bad economics, it is a reputation of the business that remains intact because it goes like that. I, I believe that, you know, you always think that you're super smart, especially when you're in consulting in the business of just giving advice without dealing <laughs> with the consequences. We believe, look, there's some, like, I don't want to say terrible industries, but industries that in general have bad economics, but you find one or two players in those industries that are doing like, when you see the numbers is like, there's like one or two comments that are in the right thing. So if we just, you know, go into that industry in which most people have not figured out how to make money and we kind of, let's say, copy that playbook, but you realize that there are some, a lot of industries that, I mean, there's just there's no, that that's a fluke, right? Like that one or two companies that get the good financials, it's a fluke or they have something that cannot repeat, be, be repeated. Right. So we have gone through those industries, right. That are known. I, I want to name names to, to kind of, you know, get, let's say controversial, but we have seen industries that you see a lot of companies struggling with profitability, with a very cyclical behavior of their of their economics. And we identify two or three targets, but once you get and know the targets and know why they're having the good results and you look at the industry and say like, this is just at some point we're going to revert to the mean. So now we don't try to believe that we're 
that's smart. And we just try to look for industries where there are a lot of success cases, right? Like for example, the fire protection, I feel confident in just talking openly about it because if more people want to come into the industry, there's enough targets that would, you know, like it doesn't depend on finding the two or three companies that are good. So basically it's, we don't believe that we're brilliant anymore. And we're trying to go to the industries that actually foster good economics. And the second is that small is easier, right? Again, like you can, there's obviously, if there's like very few employees, you know that you don't have a lot of resources to do it, but the challenge of really transforming and integrating small companies, it's way more work. I would say like it, it grows exponentially as the size of a company decreases. So, you know, in my previous life, I work at for some pretty big integrations like HP with CSC. And obviously there's like hundreds of people working there, but just the timelines and the level of support that you get, it's like, I want to say it's easier, but the level of stress that I had in those kind of integrations is, is a way, way lower than in trying to transform at 50 people, 4 million revenue company. So we still believe that this market, it's where we feel passionate about it. There's a lot of opportunities, but the level of challenge to work with these companies is just so big that now we see why there's a lot of, like nobody's looking at, at kind of these companies right now. Yeah, no kidding. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and chatting a little bit. It's been really interesting hearing about fire protection as an industry. We haven't had kind of a podcast reviewing thesis in, in too much depth. So that was really, that was, that was great. Thanks for sharing. Great to have you on. I'm looking forward to chatting again soon. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Let's hopefully we can catch up in a, in a, in a few or years or so. And, and let's see if we were able to consolidate this, this beautiful industry. Yeah, absolutely. I hope it works out. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Put In Strong, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakbourne Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.